U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with President Xi Jinping amid a high-stakes visit to China. It's Monday, June 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, an MIT professor shares the growing concerns that artificial intelligence could be used as a weapon of war. It's a disgusting idea to delegate to machines decisions about who should get killed, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, that that responsibility should always remain with humans. Also, a year after historic floods in and around Yellowstone National Park, people are still trying to rebuild their homes and the sour. We can't tackle what we can't measure. And by measuring it, we shine a spotlight on it and make it more difficult to ignore. The powerful new satellite that'll give a better look at air pollution. In sports, Red Sox sweep the Yankees, partly sunny, near 70 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Chinese President Xi Jinping, capping off two days of meetings in Beijing. It's the first visit to China by a U.S. Secretary of State in five years. But as NPR's Emily Fang reports, the two sides are not expecting any diplomatic breakthroughs at this time. Xi Jinping told Blinken he hopes the U.S. can make, quote, positive contributions to stabilizing China-U.S. relations. He brought up his meeting with President Biden in Indonesia last year and said he hoped the two countries could build on progress made there. Xi is expected to visit the U.S. in November, and U.S. diplomats are hoping today's meeting with Blinken can reboot some of the dialogues the U.S. and China once had. This weekend, the U.S. and China also agreed to increase the number of commercial flights between the two countries. The number of flights had dropped to just a fraction of previous volumes during the pandemic. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Israeli troops and Palestinian militants are engaged in a fierce battle in the West Bank city of Jenin. Officials say at least four Palestinians were killed and dozens wounded. Israel says at least seven of its soldiers were also wounded. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. It's one of the most intense battles in the occupied West Bank in more than a year of Palestinian attacks and Israeli military raids. Israel says its forces raided the city of Jenin to arrest a pair of suspects when a massive exchange of fire took place, including explosive devices that damaged an army vehicle. Palestinian officials say a 15-year-old was among those killed and a young Palestinian girl was among those wounded. A military official says Israeli combat helicopters opened fire but did not hit anyone. They were deployed for the first time in the area in 20 years since the Second Intifada. Israel's finance minister is calling for a wider operation. A top Palestinian official is calling for unprecedented measures in response. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. An investigation is underway into a mass shooting in Illinois that left one person dead and more than 20 others injured. NPR's Juliana Kim reports the gunfire erupted early yesterday about 20 miles southwest of Chicago. The shooting occurred in Willowbrook, a small Chicago suburb. Around 12.30 a.m. local time, police officers responded to sounds of gunshots coming from a large gathering outside a strip mall. Multiple people were rushed to area hospitals. The DuPage County Sheriff's Office hasn't provided details about the victims or their conditions. Officials said information about the suspect or suspects was still under investigation. Witnesses told ABC7 that the large group gathered outside the strip mall was for a Juneteenth celebration. Juliana Kim, NPR News. This is NPR. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBOR in Boston. And today is the Juneteenth holiday. It's a day to mark the end of the enslavement of black Americans. Because of the holiday, government offices are closed today. There's also no mail delivery. Despite the holiday, the T will operate on a weekday schedule. One of the first critics of Boston's The Embrace Monument has had a change of heart. Coretta Scott King's cousin, Seneca Scott, had published an essay deriding the sculpture. But since then, Scott has seen the monument for the first time. WBOR's Cristela Guerra reports. Seneca Scott was a guest of honor at the second annual Embrace Ideas Festival in Boston last week. On the common, he stood beneath the monument's clasped bronze hands. He says this experience changed his perspective. And I'm happy to say I got to visit the statue in the physical, and it was a thrilling experience. So I stand corrected, but I'm happy that I wrote it, because now I'm here. Those who built the monument remain proud of it. Embrace Boston is now looking ahead to its next big project, a 31,000-square-foot music hall, museum, and arts and culture space. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm The head of Boston Public Schools does not want police officers back in schools. That's that's despite recent incidents that included a teacher being knocked unconscious by a student in a Dorchester school. Superintendent Mary Skipper tells WCVBs on the record that instead, school safety specialists will work closely with the Boston Police Department. Those safety specialists are now trained fully in trauma in uh, de-escalation techniques. And so we use them in all of our schools as a way to build relationships with our students. Because frankly, as a principal, and certainly as a superintendent, that's one of the Mm -hmm. best first lines. Skipper is also rolling out initiatives, including a peer mediation program to help stem conflicts in schools. Police have not been stationed inside Boston schools since 2021. The Suffolk District Attorney's Office is giving away more than a quarter million dollars that it says was seized from illegal drug operations. Forty-five local nonprofits will receive up to $7,500 each as part of the Community Reinvestment Grant Program. The DA's office says the goal of the program is to prevent youth violence and treat substance abuse. There was a bizarre sight on a New Hampshire beach this weekend, a hovercraft. The privately owned vehicle was on its way from Cape Cod to Canada. It had to make an emergency stop at Hampton Beach on Saturday to the surprise of people on the beach. After making some repairs, the hovercraft resumed its voyage yesterday to Nova Scotia. It's 7.06. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. The Red Sox won both games of yesterday's doubleheader with the New York Yankees. Boston won the early game 6-2, then won the nightcap 4-1. The Sox begin a week-long road trip tonight in Minnesota. Partly sunny today with a chance for afternoon showers. It'll be near 70. Cloudy overnight with showers possible. Temperatures will be in the 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow and more showers are possible near 70 again. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says his talks with Chinese counterparts in Beijing were candid, substantive, and constructive. China's Xi Jinping talked about what he termed progress. Blinken spent the weekend in Beijing in hopes of repairing a relationship that soured over what the U.S. and China both perceive as threats to stability. Now, for his assessment on those talks, we've called Jude Blanchett. He holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Blinken met with Xi Jinping this morning, Jude, um, and he says he told Xi Jinping that Biden believes that uh, China and D.C. have an obligation to manage the relationship. What do you think manage means? Well, at this point, the relationship has deteriorated to such an extent that I think at a, a foundational level, manage means steering these two countries away from uh, conflict. And so you saw in the U.S. efforts over the last several weeks and months culminating in this visit that there was a, a intense effort to address what they thought was the growing risk of misperception and, and miscalculation in the relationship. So basically, just don't get into a war with each other. That's, that's, how, that's how low this has gotten to. Sadly, yes. And what would that war be about, you think? Is it, is it tech, uh, Taiwan? What would it be about if, if it got there? Well, you know, sticking with the the visits over the weekend, we can see from the the readouts that come from the Chinese side what what their bill of indictment is. And core is the issue of Taiwan, which we saw from the meeting readout uh, when Blinken met with Wang Yi, who's China's top diplomat, that they see Taiwan as really the core issue here. And as the readout states on this issue, there's, quote, no room for any compromise or concession. And so I think there's a growing fear uh, around the world that Taiwan is an issue where the, the two countries could directly clash. But we also see that China sees, as you as you indicated, in areas ranging from, you know, technology to trade, that Beijing believes the United States is already engaged in some sort of conflict on, on these. So there's a lot of issues uh, on the table now that the two the two capitals need to work through. Jude, are lines drawn all over the place? Uh, I mean, it just seems like everywhere, everywhere anyone turns to see where there can be consensus, there's a line in the sand drawn. Yeah, it, it's this has become a fraught fraught issue politically as well in both in both capitals. I should say the the politics of U.S. China relations really constrains the ability of leaders in both capitals to make accommodations. You you have. Uh, you know, you have participants in the political discussion who don't want to see any any sort of compromise here, who believe that that this would be, you know, giving away too much. And so if you think about the ability of previous administrations, the Kennedy administration during the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, you know, you really needed a high degree of flexibility to be able to navigating these navigate these tensions. And, and in this, you know, media and political environment, it, it's it's incredibly difficult for uh, uh, elected officials to have that navigate that navigation space. Last week, uh, New Jersey Congressman Andy Kim, a member of the House Committee on China, spoke with uh, my colleague Leila Fadel last week. Let's listen to what he said. Our policy to China is so reactionary. We're just responding to the latest headlines. It was mm. a spy balloon yesterday. It's a TikTok today. And those are important issues. But our policy shouldn't just be that short-sighted. Jude, is he right? Is the U.S. failing on a long-term approach to China? Yeah, I tend to agree with Representative Kim on the the way that we're approaching this, which I do think is is very much sort of taking this issue by issue. 
and and finding ways to respond. And when you do that, you're always going to be on your your back heels. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that we need to have a more affirmative long-term vision for precisely how we're going to manage this. I don't think it's possible that we're going to back China into a uh, you know in, into a corner and expect it to change its way. It's it's a significant and powerful country. Uh, but frankly, I think I think the United States, you know, holds a better set of 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 cards here. It's just that we haven't found the the sort of long term way to 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 manage this. Right. And as we watch, um, you know, as we watch the two countries jostle together, I think we've got to find ways to to deal with this. Quickly, one more thing. Uh, Blinken just said that he expressed deep concerns about the U.S. by the U.S. about human rights violations, like in Tibet and Hong Kong. Quickly, uh, can the U.S. pressure there make any difference? It would be hard to, but we have to continue. the The human rights, uh, uh, the human rights atrocities in China are so significant that we can't leave these off the table. And so, I think the administration is doing a good job making sure we we raise these. Jude Blanchett is a China expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Jude, thanks. Ukraine's military offensive has retaken a number of villages from Russian forces. A British military assessment finds the fighting is also generating heavy casualties on both sides. NPR's Greg Myrie reports from Kyiv. Ukraine's military says it captured a small village Sunday as part of its big push to drive Russian troops out of the southeast of the country. The taking of the settlement, Piatikatki, marks the eighth village Ukraine has claimed since its offensive began more than a week ago. By all accounts, the fighting has been intense in the three areas where Ukraine is attacking, but details have been sparse. In his nightly address, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said, quote, our troops are advancing position by position, but he didn't mention specific places. Both Ukraine and Russia spent months preparing for the battles now underway. Ukraine received an array of new weaponry from the U.S. and Europe. The Russians have been laying minefields, building trenches, and reinforcing potential weak spots. Meanwhile, British military officials say it appears both Russia and Ukraine are suffering high casualties. The assessment says Ukraine is making small advances, while Russian forces are conducting, quote, relatively effective defensive operations. While little information is coming from the front, Ukrainian soldiers still in training near Kyiv say they're confident. A soldier who goes by the call sign Mohawk explains why he joined the army for the first time at age 37 as a private. I just joined them a few months ago, and um, all of my friends died at war, and right now I'm here just to take some revenge, maybe. Just to go there and to kill Russians because they invade our motherland. In a war where battlefield information has generally flowed freely, neither side is saying much about Ukraine's offensive, which could be the biggest fight of the war. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. Polluted air can lead to heart and lung disease and shorter, sicker lives. Now, a powerful new satellite is expected to bring the most detailed data ever collected about air pollution across the U.S. NPR's Shema Byram reports. Look across the street from David Jones's porch in Baltimore, and you'll see these giant piles of coal. Coal dust covers everything in his neighborhood, including his house. I mean, it's black, it's sooty. My whole house is black. Jones lives across from a coal export terminal in the neighborhood of Curtis Bay. Trains unload coal into heaps taller than his house. The piles can sit for days before being loaded onto ships headed overseas. And coal dust from those piles 
It ends up everywhere. It gets into Jones's home and into his lungs. You wake up in the morning, you go in the bathroom and you go to spit up because your throat hurts and you can see black particulates in your spit. Jones's neighborhood is one of the most polluted in the country. Air monitors here pick up high levels of soot, an air pollutant that's been linked to lung cancer and respiratory diseases like asthma. The air is so dirty that Jones doesn't open his windows, even when it's nice out. You know, leaving my windows open, it's, it's kind of a catch-22. It's like, oh, I want to enjoy the fresh air, but I don't want to feel like I'm sick in the morning. Curtis Bay residents have been trying to get environmental regulators to crack down on this pollution for years. They're among millions of Americans facing dangerous levels of pollution from factories, truck traffic, refineries, and landfills. It's a burden that falls disproportionately on working class and poor neighborhoods and communities of color. But residents often don't even know what's in the air they're breathing. The federal government's data on air pollution is patchy and incomplete. That leaves researchers like Matthew Auberg trying to fill in the gaps. Yeah, so I, I come out here two to four times a week, probably. Auberg is a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University. He's been working with Curtis Bay residents to install local air quality monitors, including on the roof of a car detailing shop. I have a ladder in my car right now um, to go up on the roof and just do some maintenance on the monitors. Here's the problem. Monitoring air pollution like this is not very efficient. It takes a lot of time, and there aren't enough monitors to know what's happening in every neighborhood in America. But a new satellite launched by NASA aims to change that. It carries an instrument called Tempo. And starting this summer, it'll take detailed measurements of air pollution every hour, every day, in every neighborhood across the U.S. The satellite will give us a more accurate picture of air quality than we've ever had before. And that's a potential game-changer for communities like Curtis Bay. Susan Annenberg is the director of the Climate and Health Institute at George Washington University. We can't tackle what we can't measure. And by measuring it, we put it out there, shine a spotlight on it, and make it more difficult to ignore. The satellite could also highlight sources of greenhouse gases, which cause climate change. But having the information is just the first step. Annenberg says officials have to actually use the new data to protect vulnerable communities. We can't put the responsibility on individuals to take action. This is the responsibility of governments. But under current law, the Environmental Protection Agency, the main regulator for air pollution, isn't required to use this data. An EPA spokesperson says the agency does plan to use the new data and is working to determine how. For now, David Jones says residents of Curtis Bay feel alone in their fight. No one else is going to stand up for the people of this community other than the people from the community. NASA's satellite could be a powerful new tool in that fight. It'll start sending data every hour at the end of August. Shema Bayram, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, an MIT professor of physics weighs in on the growing concerns that artificial intelligence could be used as a weapon. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu. The city of Milwaukee has an ambitious climate plan to cut its carbon emissions. There's a lot of different ways that climate change is affecting us, even here in the Midwest. We've got to act. We've waited way too long. Hundreds of U.S. cities have similar plans, and very few have met their goals. Why not? Is there a better way for cities to tackle climate change? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point. This morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly sunny today with a high near 70. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at totalwine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Today, the country observes Juneteenth. The holiday marks the arrival of U.S. Army troops in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865. The troops told some of the last enslaved Americans that they were free. They were enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation, in which President Abraham Lincoln decreed some enslaved people to be free on January 1, 1863. We're about to hear that document in its entirety. But first, we want to hear from Nathan Connolly, an associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University. The initial Emancipation Proclamation came as a consequence of almost two years of people fleeing plantations. So by the time the proclamation was formally issued in January of 63, it was there to effectively punish states that were in rebellion and encourage those who believed in the military power and potential of African-descended people to basically know that there was going to be freedom at the end of this military struggle, or at least as a critical part of it. And as Connolly told me, the proclamation represents both freedom and an unfulfilled promise. So going as far back as Frederick Douglass's very famous speech in 1852, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, it was very clear that the nation's Independence Day was not the same thing as a black Independence Day. Juneteenth is a kind of acknowledgement that July 4th was incomplete, but also that it required very active efforts on the parts of everyday black people, the military and the federal government, that there is a kind of frailty to freedom. That's historian Nathan Connolly at Johns Hopkins University. And now, our NPR colleagues read the Emancipation Proclamation. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. 
Whereas on the 22nd day of September in the year of our Lord 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following, to wit, that on the first day of January in the year of our Lord 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. That the executive will, on the first day of January aforesaid, by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof, respectively, shall then be in rebellion against the United States. And the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented in the Congress of the United States by members chosen thereto at elections, wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such states shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, do on this first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1863, and in accordance with my purpose so to do publicly proclaim for the full period of 100 days, from the day first above mentioned, order and designate as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are this day in rebellion against the United States, the following to wit. Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Plaquemines, Jefferson, St. John, St. Charles, St. James Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, Lafouche, St. Mary, St. Martin, and Orleans, including the city of New Orleans. Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia. Except the 48 counties designated as West Virginia and also the counties of Berkeley, Accomack, Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Princess Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And by virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are, and henceforward, shall be free. And that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence, unless in necessary self-defense. And I recommend to them that in all cases when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, 
positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this first day of January in the year of our Lord 1863, and of the independence of the United States of America the 87th, by the President Abraham Lincoln. A reading of the Emancipation Proclamation for Juneteenth, also known as Emancipation Day or Black Independence Day. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the growing popularity and visibility of today's Juneteenth holiday. It's one of many, one that many Americans are still learning about. It's 7.29. Follow the news every day with the WBUR app. It's easy to listen live from anywhere or even pause and rewind. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com/mos. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Taiwan and the war in Ukraine were among the issues he discussed today in Beijing with China's President Xi Jinping. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is scheduled to hold meetings this week with China's new premier, Li Qiong, in Berlin. NPR's Rob Schmitz says the two will attend a dinner tonight before holding talks tomorrow. Lee chose Germany for his first overseas trip as China's premier, reflecting the special relationship between Europe and Asia's biggest economies. German Chancellor Scholz's challenge will be to reassure the Chinese that Germany wishes to maintain stable ties with its largest trading partner while, on the other hand, comply with the G7 pledge to de-risk from Beijing and keep it at an arm's length. The chairman of the Federal Reserve will be testifying to members of House and Senate committees this week. As Steve Beckner reports, lawmakers will be hearing from Jerome Powell days after Fed policymakers decided to leave interest rates alone for the first time in 15 months. The Fed left the key federal funds rate unchanged last Wednesday, but Powell warned it will resume rate hikes if inflation stays high. Fed officials project higher rates but differ on how soon rates should be raised further and how high they should go. Powell could give clues this week when he goes before the House Financial Services Committee, then the Senate Banking Committee. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. New England states are asking for federal help for farmers. Many suffered losses after deep freezes earlier this year, including a loss of 75 percent of the apple crop in New Hampshire. Sean Jasper is that state's commissioner of agriculture. There are some tools that they have available. 
probably not just cash grants, but particularly with farms that already have relationships with the USDA through the Farm Service Program, through loans or loans that are guaranteed. Uh, there is some hope there for modifications so that uh, people can survive. The exact amount and method of relief would ultimately be determined by Congress. Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare says it took months to reach out directly to customers impacted by a data breach. The insurer says the cyber attack blocked access to customer contact information when it began in April. They tell the Boston Globe that it wasn't until last week that they began reaching out to customers affected. Some of those customers have filed a class action lawsuit against the company. The Concord Museum will lead a walking tour today in celebration of Juneteenth. The tour will teach about the local women and men who played a role in the abolitionist movement. Mary Wren Vanderwilden is leading the walking tour. She says it'll also cover slavery in Concord and the first generation of freed African Americans in the area. It's my hope that through the tour and through even the holiday Juneteenth that we connect people to this fuller picture of Concord and um, even who we are as Americans. The museum also has a gallery that highlights the stories of freed African Americans. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Red Sox swept their weekend series from the New York Yankees. Boston won both games of yesterday's doubleheader. The Sox won the early game 6-2 and the late game 4-1. They'll visit the Minnesota Twins tonight. A mix of sun and clouds today with highs in the upper 60s, mostly cloudy and upper 50s tonight. Then partly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. We'll have high temperatures back near 70. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Artificial intelligence technology is advancing faster than anyone, even its developers, expected it to. That's why experts are asking everyone to hit the pause button while governments catch up to impose guardrails on AI systems before, worst case scenario, the potentially dangerous tech drives humans extinct. Max Tegmark is a professor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and one of the experts who signed the open letter on the dangers of AI. He says one example of the potential dangers of AI is how it's being used as a weapon. What's new with AI in the military is the shift towards actually letting AI make decisions about who gets killed and who doesn't, which are traditionally reserved for people. Now, letting AI make these kinds of decisions Are they done with enough guardrails where humans can still be in charge? No, it's all up to whoever owns the weapons, right? So, for example, the United Nations had a report about how fairly recently Turkish drones were used in a fully autonomous mode to hunt down and kill fleeing people. 
the guardrails there were whatever the militia or whoever controlled those Turkish purchased drones wanted to be. In those situations, I mean, is there nothing that can be done other than <laughs> flat out war and a battle against those kind of countries that would have that kind of artificial intelligence? I mean, is that what we're looking at? There is no negotiation, it seems like, with that kind of AI. Well, there's plenty that can be done. It's just the political will has been sort of lacking so far. With biological weapons, for example, we came together, the major military powers of the world, and decided these are disgusting weapons. We banned biological weapons, and it's a great success. And we could do the same with lethal autonomous weapons too, if we just agreed that it's a disgusting idea to delegate to machines decisions about who should get killed, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, and that, that responsibility should always remain with humans. Let's hear from General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he talked about the military implementation of the technology. The United States policy right now, actually, uh, with respect to artificial intelligence and its application to military operations, is to ensure that humans remain in the decision-making loop. That is not the policy necessarily of adversarial countries that are also developing artificial intelligence. Okay, so, Professor, on our end, if we are putting these kinds of guardrails and these kinds of controls on our artificial intelligence. How wise is that if we see the rest of the world not necessarily agreeing with what we do? <laughs> it's ridiculous, as you point out, because what Mark Milley is saying here is that, A, this stuff is going to be decisive in the battlefield. B, we are going to hold ourselves to high moral standards where it's a human making the decision. If we're going to have these high standards, we should insist that everybody else has those high standards also. We just need uh, the U.S. to push hard internationally for a ban on a narrow class of, of weapons. So where, where does that put us right now then? Because here's the thing. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, hear these stories of artificial intelligence of the military, artificial intelligence development, and automatically think of their favorite movie or TV show where it shows that it's inevitable, that we will eventually be replaced if not used for energy. So what point are we right now where we kind of try and take that fantasy out of our heads and deal with the reality of what we have in front of us? <laughs> the reality is uh, it's pretty likely to happen the way we're going, but it's not inevitable. You know, if you go to Ukraine and tell people, hey, it's inevitable that you're going to lose to the Russians, so just give up, people would be pissed at you. And I get similarly <laughs> upset when people say it's inevitable that we're going to get replaced by AI, because it's not, unless you convince yourself that it's inevitable and make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're building this stuff. So, you know, I've been working for many years here at MIT with my AI research group on, on how we can get machines to understand our goals and adopt them and keep them as they get smarter. And it looks like we will be able to solve these problems, but we haven't solved it yet. We need more time. And unfortunately, it's turned out to be easier to just build super powerful AI and make tons of money on it than it's been solving this so-called alignment problem. That's why many of us have called for a pause to put some safety standards in place to give the community enough time so we can get to this good future and not um, rush so fast that uh, we just wipe ourselves out in the process instead. That's Max Hegmark. He's a professor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and one of the experts who signed an open letter on the dangers of AI. Professor, thanks a lot. Thank you very much.
Salsa music has its roots in multiple places, but it's the Bronx in New York City that could soon be home to the first ever International Salsa Museum. But what is salsa exactly? Here's Willie Rodriguez, the museum's co-founder. The origins of salsa came from Africa with its unique percussive rhythms and made its way through the Atlantic into the Caribbean. And from there, it became mambo, guaracha, guaguancó, somontuno. Rumba. Rodriguez is a prolific pianist. He says salsa is part of who he is. It's deeply embedded into our DNA. As Latinos and as African Americans, there currently isn't a salsa museum. If we don't preserve this, we're definitely going to lose the essence of where this music came from. Now, the museum's permanent space likely won't be here until 2029. Its founders hope to put it inside a decommissioned armory. In the meantime, they're building awareness. Las caras lindas de mi gente negra. We fully exist already. We are doing and have been doing virtual events, pop-up events, and showing up in our community, whether it's a book bag giveaway or sponsoring a scholarship. That's Janice Torres, a member of the museum's advisory board. She says the legacy of salsa should be preserved in the place it was popularized. The Bronx is known as El Condado de la Salsa, or the Borough of Salsa. There's a museum for every genre, for rock, jazz. There's even a museum for trap music in Atlanta. But yet, there is no museum celebrating the roots of Latin music history. According to Torres, the museum will include music and dance programs and a recording studio along with traditional exhibits. Their first pop-up happened last year in New York where solceros came together to dance and learn about the history of salsa. Shanique Rodriguez is a Puerto Rican artist who was featured at the event. When I think of Puerto Rico, I think of old school salsa even when it comes to like listening to salsa, you just think of that authentic, like home cooked meal. The second annual International Salsa Museum pop up is happening Labor Day weekend at the Marriott Marquis in Times Square. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, we have the latest on U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's historic high-stakes visit to China. We'll have temperatures near 70 today under partly sunny skies. Tonight, mostly cloudy and temperatures dip into the 50s. Tomorrow, partly cloudy skies may give way to showers. It'll be near 70. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. Timeout Market Boston in the Fenway neighborhood is hosting a wine tasting event today in honor of the Juneteenth holiday. The tasting exclusively features items from winemakers and producers of color. Michael Minicello is Timeout Market Boston's general manager. He says the makers will also share their experience of being black in the industry. 
it's an opportunity to come in and learn about these producers and how they've broken through and done some really great things. We try to find events to really bring the community together. The event starts at 6.30 this evening. A proposed development project in the seaport could include space for the neighborhood's first fire station. The Boston Globe reports the Boston Planning and Development Agency is considering the plan for its site on Channel Street. The property was once home to Stavis Seafoods. The nine-story project also includes plans for office and lab space. It's 744. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. America is celebrating Juneteenth today. It's the newest federal holiday on the calendar, and many are still learning about its meaning and origins. NPR's Alana Weiss has more. The holiday celebrating the last days of American slavery began in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865. That was the day Union soldiers rode into town to inform Texans that slavery was to officially come to an end under the Emancipation Proclamation. These enslaved people were among the last to learn of their own freedom. We are not celebrating the history of Juneteenth. We are celebrating the symbolism of Juneteenth. That was Leslie Wilson, professor of history at Montclair State University. Juneteenth became a symbol of strength as well as a symbol of triumph for African-Americans. Historically, the holiday was relatively obscure, with its origins in the Southwest. But as Black families migrated, they brought their regional traditions with them, including Juneteenth celebrations of food, family, and music. People, particularly who had grown up in Texas, brought the holiday of Juneteenth with them. Since that day in 1865, Juneteenth has seen its popularity and visibility rise, slowly outside of Black communities and into the broader public sphere. Americans across the country have been taking advantage of the holiday weekend. But some are still learning about its significance, like tourist Alex Merkel and his fiance, who are visiting the National Mall in D.C. News to me up until I was in my 40s, so that was kind of shocking that like a big piece of American history was something I had never learned about and was unaware of that much of my life. Last year, about 6 in 10 adults said they knew at least a little about the emancipation holiday, according to a poll from Gallup. Whereas in 2021, just 37 percent of people expressed some familiarity with the celebration. That was the year that President Biden officially commemorated the date. While Black Americans had always celebrated, the new federal holiday has been somewhat controversial. 
Wilson, the Montclair professor, put it this way. Kids in America have been taught for over 100 years that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves on January 1st, 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation. They believe that the Civil War came to an end when Robert E. Lee surrendered his army to Ulysses S. Grant. The history of Juneteenth contradicts both of those things. Despite its uncomfortable origins and the direct ties many Black people feel with the celebrations, non-Black people can learn from the day as well, according to Greg Carr, an associate professor of Africana Studies at Howard University. Because of the political turmoil the country has undergone in recent years, Carr says holidays like Juneteenth can help Americans unpack what it means to participate in society. I think Juneteenth celebrations are a chance for this country, for the United States, to rethink not only its origins, but the relationship of everybody who lives in this country to each other. Meanwhile, back on the National Mall, visiting Texas native Patience Williams said she's glad the holiday is getting the attention it deserves. As a Black person, it means a lot to me, you know, to celebrate everybody who was free because it's like so many people don't know and it's a part of our history. Like we celebrate everything in America, you know, so those Black holidays, it's like everybody should know about Juneteenth because it's a part of our history. Celebrations will continue throughout the day. Alana Wise, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 820, researchers at Michigan State Law School are challenging decisions that originally involved enslaved people, which are still cited as good precedents by judges deciding cases today. It's 749. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he talked about Ukraine with Chinese President Xi Jinping during their meeting in Beijing today. A 15-year-old boy is among at least four Palestinians killed by Israeli troops during a clash for territory on the West Bank. And it's the Juneteenth holiday today, which marks the end of enslavement of black Americans. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. Near 70 today under partly cloudy skies, upper 50s tonight and mostly cloudy. Tomorrow back near 70 under partly sunny skies. There's a chance of showers. It's 62 degrees in Boston.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Mobile homes provide affordable housing to millions of Americans. But what happens when disaster strikes? Just over a year ago, record-setting floods washed out roads in and around Yellowstone National Park. They also damaged a number of mobile homes. The park has mostly recovered, but some people who lost their trailer homes are still struggling. We're taking a closer look at an issue that is exacerbating the country's affordable housing crisis. In a couple of minutes, we're going to hear from NPR's Malika Sashadri about the limited options available to mobile home owners impacted by natural disasters. But first, we begin with a report from Yellowstone Public Radio's Kayla DeRoche. Amanda Holmes, a 31-year-old mother of four, helps customers check out at the gas station where she works along the Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River. A year ago, when the big floods hit, she was standing in the kitchen of her mobile home in the small town of Fromberg. It's close to a popular scenic highway into Yellowstone National Park. Her son told her he saw water in the road. And I was like, well, but it's raining. That's gonna happen. He's like, no, mom, there's water in the road. A couple of days later, she and her family had to evacuate permanently. Water got deep enough inside her trailer to cover the furniture in the bedrooms. They soon learned their mobile home would have to be condemned. They'd lost their place to live and would need to move into their camper. It's very surreal at the moment, just knowing that all of our stuff is practically gone. Now, a year later, Holmes, her husband, and her kids, aged 4 to 10, are still living in a camper. Holmes says she got less than $5,000 in assistance money from FEMA and the Red Cross, and her family still can't find a place to rent. If it's big enough, they either want way too much rent that I can't afford, or they don't want pets. There was already an affordable housing crisis in Yellowstone Gateway communities before the floods hit, says Kristen Smith with the Montana think tank Headwaters Economics. What happened with the Yellowstone floods is that it came in and made a tough situation even worse. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition says Montana is short nearly 16,000 rental units for its lowest-income people. So again, if you have a flood event that actually takes houses offline, you're just creating less housing in a place that already desperately needed more housing options. Smith says nearly 10 percent of Montana's housing stock are mobile homes, a higher rate than most states. Amanda Holmes can't go back to the trailer park where she lived before. The land has been sold to a new developer. So, yeah, big chaotic mess, but slowly bringing her back together. So. This one will be a big, wide-open floor plan. and That's so the new owner, Nate Caton. He's refurbishing this house and two others on that property. But trailers are on the way out. Caton is a town councilman here in Fromberg. It was a chance to hit the reset button, and why not give something to the community that it needed the most out of anything? Caton says the former mobile home park of more than a dozen structures was aging and says only a handful were occupied before the flood. He and his co-owner aren't interested in running it as a trailer park again. Caton says they want to build four new permanent units, but ones that are still accessible for working-class families. For now, though, there's less housing than there used to be in Fromberg, making it a lot harder for working mom Amanda Holmes to stay, which she wants to do because her four kids are enrolled in a school she really likes. They are great. I would not put them in any other school. They work so good with my kids, and my kids have excelled so far. She hopes to find a place, if not in Fromberg, in nearby Bridger, where she works. Until then, she's living on a friend's property and browsing social media, looking for a permanent home. 
For NPR News, I'm Kayla DeRoche in Billings, Montana. Nationwide, some 20 million Americans live in mobile homes, and almost 3 million of these residences sit on high flood risk land. Now, here to tell us more about what kind of options they have is NPR's Malika Sashadri. Uh, Malika, the situation in Montana really sounds terrible, but how common is it? Yeah, it is really difficult. People facing eviction after a natural disaster appears to be pretty common, though. A 2021 study of four southern states shows evictions went up by more than 30% in storm-affected areas in comparison to nearby regions that weren't hit as hard. Oftentimes, mobile home residents are people who are elderly or parents with younger children. People with disabilities and challenges with mobility are also overrepresented in these areas and are more likely to be permanently displaced. It's also harder for people living in these communities to qualify for relief funding because about 40% own their home but rent the land. So in some cases, they're considered renters, in other cases, owners, sometimes both and sometimes neither. Yeah, and as we heard in Kayla's story, Montana doesn't offer a lot of help to mobile home residents. Uh, What about other states, though? It really varies a lot from state to state, but providing relief funding doesn't seem to be the norm. There are some exceptions, though. State officials in Vermont allocated almost $20 million in 2021 and 2022 toward projects that would decrease flood risk and enable buyouts for residents in need of relocating. There are also a number of states that have tried to bolster protections for mobile home residents more generally. Colorado is one of them and established a mobile home park oversight program three years ago to listen to grievances and solve disputes. But one of their annual reports revealed that more than 70% of residents don't know about it. And that effort doesn't specifically deal with flood risk. I'm in California. What about uh, here in California? Yeah, out here, the state of mobile homes is overseen by the Department of Housing and Community Development, but the agency can't do much to directly aid residents, and their main course of action is to make a referral back to a local agency. So what about federal agencies such as, say, FEMA? I mean, don't they usually help in a, in a case like this? Yeah, there is some federal aid available through FEMA, but Kristen Smith, a researcher at Headwaters Economics, explained that it really comes down to a cost-benefit analysis. So in order to qualify for federal funding, mobile home communities have to make a case for why it would be in FEMA's interest to allocate money. But the value of mobile homes is low, and to some, investing large sums of money to help just doesn't seem worth it. Congress did also pass a couple bills in 2021, which makes grant money available to nonprofits and agencies that are trying to preserve mobile homes, but it's not specifically geared toward flood risk. That's NPR's Malika Sashadri. Thanks uh, for your reporting. Thank you. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, cyber attacks are claiming victims in nearly every U.S. sector, from banking to government to retail. But what happens when hackers attack a hospital? New research suggests that an attack on just one hospital can have widespread ramifications for an entire network of medical providers and even put lives at risk. You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Upper 60s and partly cloudy today, mostly cloudy tonight and upper 50s. About the same tomorrow, partly cloudy, upper 60s, plus a chance of rain. It's 62 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. 
here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with President Xi Jinping during a historic visit to China aimed at de-escalating tensions between the two countries. It's Monday, June 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, amid Blinken's rare visit, we look at why President Biden has chosen to continue tariffs on China. What has China done in these last few years that would merit changing this tariff structure? Also this hour, how a team at Michigan State Law School is shining a light on the legal profession's links to slavery. Plus... There was a celebration in Arkansas, the Juneteenth Soul Food Festival and Market, and it had a poster advertising it, and everyone on the poster, all three hosts, were white. Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham explains growing concerns that Juneteenth is already losing its meaning. Partly sunny, near 70 today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is wrapping up two days of high-level talks with members of the Chinese government, including a brief visit with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Speaking in Beijing, Blinken said he believes the two sides made some progress toward easing the growing tensions between the two nations. I came to Beijing to strengthen high-level channels of communication, to make clear our positions and intentions in areas of disagreement, and to explore areas where we might work together when our interests align on shared transnational challenges. And we did all of that. Here in Beijing, I had an important conversation with President Xi Jinping, and I had candid substantive and constructive discussions with my counterparts. The U.S. and China have clashed over a number of issues in recent months, including the self-governing island of Taiwan, human rights conditions in China and Hong Kong, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine's military says it's recaptured another village as part of its counteroffensive against Russian forces. NPR's Greg Myrie has more. Ukraine's military says it retook the settlement of Piatti Kotki. This marks the eighth village Ukraine has claimed since its offensive began more than a week ago. However, progress has been slow and the fighting intense. In his nightly address, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said, quote, Our troops are advancing position by position. Meanwhile, British military officials say it appears both Russia and Ukraine are suffering high casualties. The assessment says Ukraine is making small advances, while Russian forces are conducting, quote, relatively effective defensive operations. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. President Biden spent the weekend in Philadelphia kicking off his re-election bid. NPR's Amy Held reports Biden will be back on the campaign trail this week in Northern California, where he'll take part in a series of fundraising events. Biden delivered a populist message before a friendly union crowd at his first re-election rally over the weekend in Philadelphia. When the middle class does well, everybody does well. The poor have a way up. 
The wealthy don't do, they just do just fine. Biden wants the wealthy to give his campaign a way up. He's fundraising with Microsoft and LinkedIn executives in California today. Both he and former President Donald Trump also have robust small donor networks. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is fundraising in California today as well for his presidential bid. Amy Held, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is June 19th, also known as Juneteenth. The holiday celebrates the emancipation of enslaved black Americans. Because of the holiday, government offices are closed today. The post office is closed, too. It also means you don't have to fill parking meters in Boston. Despite the holiday, the T is running on a weekday schedule. There will be a Juneteenth parade this afternoon in Boston. It begins at 1 in Roxbury. The town of Brookline celebrated the holiday yesterday. WBOR's Walter Wuthman reports on the event at the Florida Ruffin Ridley School. Somerville-based senior capoeira played Brazilian music as people shopped at local vendors selling handmade candles and jewelry. Zariana Karakashian-Jones of Brookline for the Culture said she organized the event to highlight Juneteenth's messages of emancipation and resilience. And it's so important that we are able to use our history to make sure we don't, you know, make mistakes in our future. Co-organizer Adina Walker closed by singing Lift Every Voice and Sing, widely known as the Black National Anthem. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. More than half of people arrested by Harvard campus police last year were black. That's according to data released by the university's police department. In all, 23 of the 41 arrests made on campus were black individuals. That's the highest rate in the past three years. The department tells the Harvard Crimson that arrests are based on behavior and not on the basis of race and ethnicity. The head of Boston Public Schools is defending plans to relocate one of the city's exam schools. BPS wants to move the O'Brien Math and Science School from Roxbury to West Roxbury. Black community leaders have raised concerns about a potential decline in student diversity and a lack of community input on the decision. The district says the plan would give more room to both O'Brien and the neighboring Madison Park Technical Vocational High School. Superintendent Mary Skipper explained the reasoning on WCVB's On the Record. Really, we're looking at at Madison Park and the O'Briens and what neither school can get in their current location, but what each school could get were we to be able to separate them and to do a complete renovation down to the stud of the West Roxbury complex. Skipper says the plan would allow Madison Park to double its enrollment and to add 7th and 8th grades. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, Nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com.
The Red Sox won all three games of their weekend series against the New York Yankees. That includes both games of yesterday's doubleheader. Boston won the early game 6-2, to then the Sox won the nightcap 4-1. to Tonight, the Sox will visit the Minnesota Twins. In your forecast, partly sunny today with a chance for afternoon showers. It'll be near 70, cloudy overnight with showers possible, temperatures in the 50s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, and more showers are possible, near 70 again. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in China. It's the first visit by a U.S. Secretary of State in five years. And as he wraps up his trip, Blinken just met with China's President Xi Jinping. President Xi told Blinken that the world needs a generally stable China-U.S. relationship. That's according to China's state media. The meeting comes at a low point in that relationship, the lowest in decades. And the U.S. has kept expectations for Blinken's visit low, saying it's about opening lines of communication between the two global powers. Joining us is NPR international correspondent Emily Fang, who's covering these talks. Hi, Emily. Hey, Leila. So what do we know about Blinken's meeting with China's leader Xi Jinping? Well, it was a relatively short meeting, about 35 minutes. We don't yet have a readout from both sides, but the Chinese side has released footage just showing Xi Jinping greeting everyone and saying that he hoped to build on consensus reached earlier when he spoke to President Biden in Indonesia. We know the U.S. has said Blinken wants to raise uh, military dialogue between the two countries, uh, as well as asking China to control the export of fentanyl-related chemicals from China, and also the fact that Taiwan likely will be on the table. This is an island that China claims as its own, but which has really close ties to the U.S. And China has an interest in improving relations this week. Xi Jinping is expected to go to San Francisco mm. in November for an Asia-Pacific economic leaders meeting, and he wants to make sure that things are better with the U.S. and that they're ready to welcome him when he gets to California. Okay, so is this a sign that the acrimony we've seen in the U.S.-China relationship is going to decrease? Well, it's a potential start. The U.S. State Department has been careful to set low expectations for this trip because there's still substantial issues the U.S. and China disagree on and will disagree on. And those issues came up today in meetings, for example, between Blinken and China's top diplomat, Wang Yi. But the fact that these two countries are coming together at least means that they can talk about their differences. And I spoke to Ryan Haas, who is a former National Security Council staffer on China, about these talks. The trip is the initial stage of an exploratory process to try to determine if there is you know, mutual intent to moderate the relationship. But it's going to be hard because neither leader wants to be seen as caving to the other side or accommodating the other side's demands or wishes. Now there's some momentum that could pave the way for more meetings. For example, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen might go to China in the future. The U.S. and China agreed over the weekend to schedule more flights between the two countries. And China's Foreign Minister Qin Gong, who Blinken met over the weekend, says he will also visit the U.S. soon. What about all the issues the U.S. and China disagree on? There's still tariffs on U.S. and Chinese goods, export controls to China, the human rights concerns, and that's just naming a few. Yeah, those are not going to go away. And I spoke to Zhu Feng, an international relations professor at Nanjing University in China about this. He says despite these talks, he's pessimistic about overall relations. The 
He says right now the most important thing is the U.S. has locked on to China as its biggest strategic rival. And this is the consensus of the entire American strategic policy establishment. And so Zhu Feng says here there cannot be any substantial movement on the current suppression of China. Those are the words he used. Remember, Blinken was actually supposed to go to China in February. That trip got canceled. Uh, so public opinion on both sides is quite negative about the U.S.-China relationship. And the things that China wants, the lifting of trade tariffs that you mentioned, access to U.S. semiconductor technology, mm -hmm. these are just things that U.S. policymakers are going to push back hard against. NPR international correspondent Emily Fang. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Leila. There are big issues between Washington and Beijing on trade. Yeah, when he was president, Donald Trump launched a trade war with China, eventually slapping tariffs on more than $300 billion worth of imports. And two and a half years into the Biden presidency, those tariffs are under review but have not yet changed. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid talks to both Trump and Biden's top trade officials about this, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Leila. So Asma, let's go back in time first. Why were these tariffs put on China to begin with? Well, for years, businesses had been complaining that China was not playing fairly, that they subsidized their companies, they didn't respect intellectual property rights, and even forced American companies, in some cases, to turn over their tech secrets. And so Donald Trump came in and basically turned the traditional free trade norm on its head. His top trade person during this time period was a man named Bob Lighthizer, and we spoke on the phone the other day. He told me that the U.S. relationship with China, he believed, had to fundamentally change. We can't keep transferring hundreds of billions of dollars every year to somebody who's trying to harm us and take our jobs and steal our technology and threaten our military and the like. So the Trump administration turned to tariffs, which I will say at the time was extremely controversial. A 25 percent tariff on Chinese imports, lots of everyday items that Americans rely on from China were taxed. I mean, you think underwear, coats, utensils. There were also tariffs on a bunch of obscure parts that are used by American manufacturers. To be clear, many critics will say these are taxes, and these are taxes that are paid by American businesses and American consumers, not the Chinese. Now, I remember all the warnings about how this would affect prices and competition. And when Biden took over, what did he do with them? Yeah, I mean, to your point, there was a lot of criticism. I will say Democrats piled on Trump. They said that he was haphazard in the way that he launched this fight with China. One of the things that intrigues me really about Joe Biden is that he talks a lot about making things in America. I'm sure you've heard him highlight the subsidies that his government is offering to lure factories back from overseas. Right. But he's not out there talking about these tariffs, uh, and yet he has kept them in place. His team is currently reviewing them, and I asked Biden's top trade official, Catherine Tai, what is going on with this review? You know, are you going to lift any of the tariffs? And she said something that I thought was rather telling. One key question that's really important for us to consider is what has China done in these last few years that would merit our changing this tariff structure? She told me there are real issues with the way that China trades, and those issues have not gone away. She also said that overall, she's looking at how the U.S. can break what she called an addiction to just chasing the lowest price for everything, no matter the cost. Uh, I should add that tariff review I mentioned is expected to wrap up later this year. But of course, then we head into a presidential election year, and these tariffs were Donald Trump's signature policy, and he is the current Republican frontrunner. Asma, what about the businesses that pay these tariffs? What are they saying about the review? 
Well, there are definitely U.S. companies that appreciate these tariffs, and I interviewed some. But there are also business owners who are really frustrated with the climate. They had hoped that Joe Biden and his team would have changed some aspects of the tariff policy by now. Uh, I went out to Minnesota to a company called Misco. They make sound speakers, and a lot of their parts come from China. The company's CEO, Dan Diggory, told me he feels like a pawn in this big geopolitical game. And he thinks any conversation about rescinding these tariffs will be seen as being weak on China. And so as the presidential election cycle heats up, he is not optimistic that things will change. Hmm. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid. Thanks. My pleasure. For more on all of this reporting that Asma just brought to us on how U.S. tariffs affect American consumers and the relationship between the United States and China, you can listen to today's NPR Politics podcast. Virginia Democrats are aiming to take back control of the state's divided legislature later this year. The last time they were in control, they rewrote state laws on everything from abortion to the environment. Their success, though, came to a halt when Republican Glenn Youngkin became governor and the GOP reclaimed Virginia's House. But before challenging Republicans, Democrats will have to sort out their own differences in tomorrow's primaries. Here's Ben Pavier of member station VPM. There's trays of pupusas and coolers of beer on offer at a cul-de-sac party thrown for delegate Sally Hudson near downtown Charlottesville. Her stage is a lawn beneath towering oak trees, and her introduction comes from seven-year-old Violet Moore. We are so grateful for, to Sally Hudson for coming here today to deepen our understanding of our government. Hudson is a 35-year-old UVA economics professor who has represented the area in Virginia's House since 2020. Now she's making a bid for a new bright blue state Senate seat against State Senator Cree Deeds, who has been in the State House almost as long as Hudson has been alive. This is currently the hottest race in Virginia. This is the highest turnout primary on the state Senate map right now. Hudson was elected during Donald Trump's presidency, which fueled big wins for Democrats. The newcomers were more religiously and racially diverse. Women now outnumber men in the caucus. We've got a much more diverse set of perspectives around the policymaking table. I think it's time for us to start doing to the Senate what we've done to the House, and we're seeing that in the candidates who are stepping up to run for the Senate this year. One reason, Virginia's new legislative maps. The independent experts drew new boundaries from scratch, stripping incumbents of their old districts. More than two dozen lawmakers retired. Others are facing off in primaries. The churn is important for Hudson supporters like Tanishka Cruz. I think there should be term limits and for folks to be cycling in and out of these positions because times change, people's change, needs change. Deeds, Hudson's challenger, is a self-described country boy. He's a familiar face at a community center in Esmont, half an hour south of Charlottesville, where he's talking to a rare breed, rural Democrats. We've got to figure out how to get people re-engaged with the Democratic Party. One of those rural Democrats is Ren Olivier, who has been talking up deeds to voters. She sometimes gets asked why she isn't supporting Hudson. Why aren't you voting for her just because she's a woman and you're a woman? Well, no, I have to look at the total picture. Deeds was first sworn in as a lawmaker in 1992. His seniority comes with tangible perks, key committee assignments that decide what bills get heard and where money should be spent. With me, you get somebody a known quantity that's been doing the work for a long time, doing it at a high level. The two lawmakers have been on the same side of most major votes. Their colleague, Delegate Ken Plum, says that kind of cohesion on issues like abortion or elections is a far cry from the Virginia Dixiecrats who ran the party when he entered the House in the late 70s. He says they were ultra-conservative, right-wing, racist. Plum is retiring this year and has mixed feelings about the primaries. 
He says some of this year's races are about personal ambitions. At the same time, he says the party needs to keep adding fresh voices. I think that's probably healthy for the party and for the state in the long haul. Democrats won't have much time to catch their breath after the primaries. Governor Glenn Youngkin has shattered fundraising records in a push to win the legislature and put a new red stamp on the state. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham tells us about concerns that Juneteenth is increasingly being used to avoid tough conversations about race and slavery. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. And MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at mefa.org. The city of Milwaukee has an ambitious climate plan to cut its carbon emissions. There's a lot of different ways that climate change is affecting us, even here in the Midwest. We've got to act. We've waited way too long. Hundreds of U.S. cities have similar plans, and very few have met their goals. Why not? Is there a better way for cities to tackle climate change? I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point. This morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today's episode of our podcast, The Common, is out this morning. We go inside Boston City Hall. Depending on who you talk to, it's either a landmark of brutalist architecture or it's really ugly. Either way, it's in need of millions of dollars in repairs. Host Daryl C. Murphy and WBUR's Walter Wuthman, check it out. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Partly sunny today with a high near 70, mostly cloudy tonight with a low of 58. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a chance of showers. We'll have a high back near 70. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Asteroid City, the new comedy from director Wes Anderson. A junior stargazers convention is disrupted by an alien encounter. Now playing in New York and Los Angeles in theaters everywhere this Friday. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. Slavery in 2023 is still shaping the U.S. legal system more than 150 years after its abolition. Lawyers and judges across the country use old cases involving enslaved people to back up modern day legal arguments. As NPR's Rachel Treisman reports, a team of researchers is challenging that practice. 
Justin Samard was working on his history dissertation a few years back when he stumbled upon something surprising. Again and again, he found judges relying on old cases involving enslaved people to inform recent legal decisions. After months of research, I found more than 300 examples of judges directly citing slave cases in the last 35 years. Samard now leads the Citing Slavery Project at Michigan State University's College of Law. He's worked with students to create an online database of nearly 9,000 so-called slave cases and the modern cases that reference them. I've done some analysis and concluded that 18% of all published American cases are within two steps of a slave case. So either cite the slave case or cite a case that cites a slave case. Many of these cases involve things like contracts, commercial transactions, and property disputes. And most of the time, judges don't acknowledge that they involved slavery at all. Samard wants courts to consider whether it's ethical to rely on cases that treat people as property. Lawyers and judges have so much power in our society. I think it makes sense for concerned citizens to think about how that authority is constituted and also how this reflects on their judgment and their ability to support justice. Samard says the legal profession has been slow to grapple with its links to slavery, and he sees acknowledgement as an important first step. He successfully lobbied the Blue Book, the definitive citation style guide, to add a rule requiring that slave cases be labeled as such in footnotes. Slavery is all over the place. Part of the goal of our project is to make sure that influence is accounted for. His team has also met with local high school students to talk about their work and law school itself. Diversifying the profession, he says, is the way forward. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. <laughs> When it comes to aging, who isn't attracted to the idea of a fountain of youth? A decade ago, testosterone replacement therapy was marketed to millions of middle-aged men as a way to fend off age-related declines and also improve sexual function. Since then, scientists have learned more about the risks and benefits of testosterone. And as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, new research published in the New England Journal of Medicine adds to the evidence. In 2014, Time magazine ran a cover story titled menopause. It documented the rise of the then $2 billion testosterone industry. Men were told testosterone replacement therapy could help boost mood and muscle and improve virility and vitality. Steve Nissen, a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, says the marketing was hard to ignore. Men want to feel like they did when they were young, and they will seek something that is promised to them to be a fountain of youth. But then questions about safety arose. A small study of older men showed testosterone gel could indeed help improve strength, but it also found a higher rate of adverse cardiovascular events, such as heart attacks. In 2015, the FDA required manufacturers to add warning labels and determined more research was needed. So Dr. Nissen and his collaborators designed a study. It is clear from the data that a very significant fraction of men who get testosterone do in fact have cardiovascular risk factors. So was testosterone adding to the risk? That's what Dr. Nissen set out to answer. They recruited about 5,200 men, all of whom had low testosterone and had pre-existing cardiovascular disease or were at high risk of it. Half were given a placebo and half were given the real thing, a formulation of testosterone gel called androgel. They were instructed to use it daily for 22 months. And what researchers found was that the testosterone did not lead to an increased risk of heart attack or stroke. Dr. Nissen says he interprets the results with caution. 
these findings should not be used as justification for widespread prescription of these products to large numbers of men. The FDA says testosterone should be reserved for men with low testosterone confirmed by laboratory tests. One of my concerns is that when we say that the drug is safe, that it will be used as a justification for treating athletes and bodybuilders and others. The study did point to an increased risk of heart arrhythmias in men taking testosterone, as well as a small increase in the risk of kidney injury and pulmonary embolism. We didn't expect that, but that's what we found. The study was funded by a consortium of testosterone manufacturers and carried out independently by the researchers. The results are encouraging to Dr. Kambiz Taj Karimi, a board-certified urologist in the Washington, D.C. area who treats people with sexual dysfunction. He prescribes testosterone, including pellets, marketed as bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, to many of his patients and says he uses the pellets himself. I was tired. I wanted to go to bed at 7.30. I didn't want to play with my kids. Taj Karimi, who's in his early 50s, says now he has more energy, which he attributes to the testosterone pellets. I think this is truly a beneficial treatment. But there's often a big divide between anecdotes and evidence, says Dr. Stephen Woloshin, a professor of medicine at Dartmouth. I don't think there's any good evidence that it's going to make a real noticeable difference for most men. The effect is quite small. And in this study, it's an incredibly high dropout rate. About 60% of the men in the clinical trial stopped taking testosterone during the study, and many said their symptoms persisted. So if you're taking this drug and you're having persistent symptoms, that's just another way of saying it didn't work or it didn't work enough for you to notice a benefit. Willotion says he too is concerned that the study findings could revive interest in testosterone replacement therapy among people who may not stand to benefit. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Amid historic wildfires in Canada that have caused hazy skies across North America, we hear from the head of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration about the danger of smoke-filled air and other climate-related hazards. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. With a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. and China have agreed to work on stabilizing their relationship. This follows Blinken's meeting in Beijing with China's President Xi Jinping earlier today. NPR's Emily Fang says Blinken describes his talks with Xi as constructive and having met limited objectives. 
this week is a start to high-level exchanges on the diplomatic level, and both countries are hoping this paves the way for more meetings. Blinken says Taiwan, the war in Ukraine, and stemming the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. were also discussed. British lawmakers are debating whether to punish Boris Johnson following the findings of an investigative committee of parliament. The report found Johnson lied to lawmakers about parties he held during the U.K.'s COVID lockdown restrictions when Johnson was prime minister. As NPR's Lauren Freyer reports, Johnson resigned from parliament less than two weeks ago after being told of the committee's findings. Dozens of Johnson's Conservative Party colleagues may abstain from a vote to penalize him. Nevertheless, there are likely to be enough votes to deny him a pass to ever enter the Parliament building again unescorted. Parliamentary investigators also recommended the former prime minister be suspended for 90 days, but he quit before that could take effect. A special by-election for his parliamentary seat will be held next month. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule soon on the legality of college affirmative action policies. The decision will determine whether higher education institutions can consider race in their admissions. WBUR's Jacob Garcia has more on the local ties to the case. One of the cases under consideration was filed against Harvard and alleges discrimination against Asian American applicants. Harvard denies that. Abyssinia Haile is a high school junior and president of the Massachusetts Association of Student Councils. She's concerned the court's decision could lead to less diversity at colleges and universities. As a black student who plans on applying to prestigious colleges next year, I'm just really scared about how this will impact the demographic makeup of college campuses. A Harvard research study found that without affirmative action, the black student population on its campus would drop from 14 to 6 percent. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jacob Garcia. There's a new push on Beacon Hill for a statewide ban on single-use plastic shopping bags. The plans would prohibit retail stores from distributing the bags to shoppers in most cases. Instead, people could choose to bring in their own reusable bags or purchase recycled paper bags for 10 cents. Backers of the plan say more than 150 local communities already have similar rules. Former U.S. Labor Secretary and Boston Mayor Marty Walsh says he was not planning to leave the Biden administration. But he says he got an unsolicited offer to become the head of the NHL Players Association and couldn't pass up what he says was a perfect opportunity. Walsh has been on the job for three months. He describes it as a merger of previous work experiences. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Red Sox have now won four in a row. They won both games of a doubleheader yesterday against the New York Yankees. The Sox won the early game 6-2. to two. They won the late game 4-1. to one. The Sox begin a week-long road trip tonight as they play the Minnesota Twins. A mix of sun and clouds today with highs in the upper 60s, mostly cloudy and upper 50s tonight. Then partly cloudy with a chance of showers tomorrow. We'll have high temperatures back near 70. Right now it's 64 degrees in in Boston, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. 
From BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. At least 110 million people are now displaced by crises and disasters around the globe. That's according to the United Nations. The U.N. Refugee Agency says that's the greatest number of refugees the world has seen since World War II. So what's driving this increase? For more, we're joined by David Miliband. He's a former foreign secretary in the U.K. and also the current president of the International Rescue Committee. So what is happening with those numbers? Why are they as high as they are? Well, good morning to you. The fundamental reason that we've got these record numbers of people displaced by conflict and violence is that there are 54 civil wars going on around the world at the moment, and there's a major conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which has produced about 8 million internally displaced on its own, another 6 million refugees into Europe. And so you've got a failure of diplomacy, which is driving conflict. You've also got the impact slowly increasing year by year of the climate crisis, which is driving conflict itself, but also driving people from their homes. These should be distinguished from economic migrants. These are people who are fleeing for their lives. And the fact that it's one in 74 of the global population, uh, it should be chilling to all of us. And so for the refugees who are not fleeing conflict, what are they trying to escape? There, it's, it, you're talking about now the economic part. Yeah, I mean, all of this is the, the definition of a refugee is someone who has left their home in fear of their life and for whom it's not safe to go home. And so there's conflict. But also we know from Latin America, there is a large number of people fleeing from gang violence in uh, the Northern Triangle of El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras. And we know that climate disasters are driving from people from their homes as well. But we're clear in our analysis at the International Rescue Committee, we're a global humanitarian agency in about 40 countries where people have their lives shattered by conflict and disaster. We're clear that 70 to 75 percent of these refugees, asylum seekers and internally displaced are fleeing conflict. And when you look at the countries that are mainly driving people, Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, you've covered as a recent conflict. You can see uh, that conflict is the big driver, but you can also see that the routes can be quite complex. And Turkey and Iran, they lead the world in housing refugees. Why is that? Because they're next door to major sources of conflict. So Turkey has three and a half, three point seven million refugees from Syria. They've been there for about 10 years. Iran has about a million refugees uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan, on the other side of the border, has about the other side of the Afghan border has about two and a half million refugees. One of the myths is that it's rich countries that host refugees and asylum seekers. Wrong. The the vast majority, seventy to eighty percent of those internally displaced and of those who've crossed borders as refugees and asylum seekers, are in poor or lower middle income countries, not rich countries like those in Europe or in the U.S. Are rich countries doing enough or could they do more to take on their share of refugees? Well, no, they're not doing enough. We know that if 70 to 80 percent of refugees are in poor and lower middle income countries, that means the rich countries are not bearing their share. So 
point one, refugees should be getting the chances like those that are being extended by the Biden administration. Uh, it's said that 125,000 refugees a year should come on the refugee resettlement route. Secondly, more needs to be done to support those poor lower middle income countries that need help in hosting refugees. Even close allies like Jordan in the Middle East, close allies of the US need much more support. And thirdly, obviously, there's a vital job of diplomacy to get to the roots of the problem. David Miliband is president of the International Rescue Committee. David, thanks. Thanks very much. Today is Juneteenth, the federal holiday marking the day slavery ended in Texas in 1865. Congress established it just two years ago in the wake of George Floyd's death at the hands of police in Minneapolis. But Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham argues that some may be using the holiday to avoid deeper conversations about race and slavery. She joins me now to talk about that. Thanks so much for being here, Renee. Thank you, Rupa. So you wrote about fears of, quote, the gentrification of Juneteenth. What did you mean by that? And what's concerning you about the ways you're seeing Juneteenth being celebrated? Well, I I think the first thing that I found alarming came last year. There was a celebration in Arkansas and was called the Juneteenth Soul Food Festival and Market in, in Little Rock. And it had a poster advertising it. And everyone on the poster, all three hosts, were white. And, you know, obviously this became a big deal on social media and it became such a big deal um, that the the event was ultimately canceled. And I just couldn't figure out exactly how you take a day that is so specifically black and so steeped in black history in, in this country and you somehow advertise it with white people. It's not about unity. That's not the point here. We can get to unity and that could be part of it, but that is not the core of what Juneteenth is is about. And I think this is why um, a lot of Black people, myself included, were a little concerned when it was going to become a federal holiday. Because even though we think, you know, we know that they deserve that designation, it always deserved that designation. But we didn't need that. We always celebrated Juneteenth in the spirit of what it represents. And we knew that once it went out in a way to the wider world, it was going to be watered down and you were going to end up with this kind of looting of the history of what Juneteenth is really about. You talk about these celebrations using key words like unity and civility and that they are maybe ways to avoid conversations. What conversations do you think people are trying to avoid? Well, if you're going to talk about Juneteenth, you have to talk about slavery. Um, and you're talking about when Juneteenth happens, it's uh, June 19th, 1865. This was essentially a day that Black people in America had waited 246 years for. You can't talk about Juneteenth without talking about what that represents and what has happened since Juneteenth. Because not that long after Juneteenth, after 1865, when the Civil War ends, we are into Jim Crow, which will then last another century. But I also don't know how you have those discussions at a time when history is being gutted in a lot of schools and in curriculums where you can't talk about slavery and you can't talk about systemic racism and you can't talk about the Jim Crow era. So how do these two things match up? How do you celebrate a holiday or mark a holiday that is so much steeped in many of these things? According to CNN, Juneteenth is becoming one of the busiest holiday travel periods. That seems to be an example of what you're talking about. 
Is there an urgency to this? This holiday is two years old. Do we need to raise this conversation right now before, I don't know, this becomes institutionalized? I mean, look, there were people who were raising this this conversation before it was even officially a holiday who were just trying to give some guidance and say, look, you know, this is an extraordinarily important holiday. This is something that Black people have been celebrating for more than a century when most of America wasn't paying attention. A lot of America had never even heard of Juneteenth. It, It was the first holiday, first federal holiday in 40 years, and it passed in Congress overwhelmingly. Nothing passes in Congress if it passes at all overwhelmingly. So why was there so much anxious? Why was there such a push to get this done? Well, I think it was very performative um, in the ways that so many things after George Floyd's murder were performative. It looked good. The optics were good. It's more than that. It's more important than that. At its core, it is America's Independence Day, and it should be recognized as such and not just another thing that can somehow be commercialized and gutted of its meaning. Renee Graham is a Boston Globe columnist. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you have a great Juneteenth. Thank you. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the number of states that have yet to make Juneteenth an official state holiday, two years after it was designated a federal holiday. We'll have temperatures near 70 today under partly sunny skies. Tonight, mostly cloudy and temperatures dip into the 50s. Tomorrow, partly cloudy skies may give way to showers. It'll be near 70. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Logan Airport is more expensive than most U.S. airports. That's according to Finance Buzz, which ranks Logan number 27 among the 45th busiest airports in the country. It reports the average cost for a round-trip flight from Logan is just over $385. That's a 9% increase from last year. Dulles Airport, outside Washington, D.C., is the most expensive. Las Vegas is the cheapest. A new store in Avon hopes to keep merchandise out of landfills by offering steep discounts. The owner of Binstar says the warehouse-style store sells all items for one price. That price varies depending on the day. Customers must sort through dozens of bins to find anything from new electronics to home essentials. On Friday afternoons, everything is on sale for just $1. It's 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. 
And I'm A. Martinez. Climate change is presenting new challenges in our everyday lives and also in the workplace. One of those challenges is the growing threat of wildfires. Dangerous smoke-filled air, the kind East Coasters recently experienced due to wildfires in Canada, is a major hazard for workers, especially those with outdoor jobs. So how should employers handle that? I spoke earlier with Doug Parker, Assistant Secretary of Labor for Occupational Safety and Health and Director of OSHA. So for people who work outdoors, say on a farm or a construction site, uh, that are vulnerable to dangerous air quality, what are employers required to do to keep those particular people safe? Every employer has an obligation to provide a safe and healthful workplace for their employees. With respect to wildfire smoke hazards, this is something that on the West Coast, workers and employers have quite a bit of experience with. And some of the states out there have implemented rules related to protecting workers from wildfire smoke. As we see from the events in Canada, this is becoming a more widespread issue that can affect much larger parts of the country. And so our focus right now is providing guidance to employers to make sure that they're doing what they can to protect workers from these wildfire events. That includes things like moving workers indoors, delaying work if necessary, being mindful of the pace of work. And we're also recommending that employers prepare for and plan to reduce exposures to smoke using things like voluntary respirator programs. Okay. Now, are these recommendations, Doug, or are they requirements from OSHA? On the federal level, we do not have regulations that are specific to wildfire smoke. This is not something that has been regulated on a national level. At the moment, OSHA really doesn't have much they can do to an employer if a worker is saying, look, I'm not safe and I'm not healthy and it's my employer's fault, they're not doing anything. In very high um, smoke exposure situations where the air quality is extremely hazardous, we may have some authority to act, but this is really a relatively new area where our authority really hasn't been tested. And as a result, we really have taken an approach that we think is more effective given those uncertainties which is that we are encouraging people to do the right thing and protect workers from smoke. Our tools are limited right now. Did the fires and, and the smoke in the East Coast uh, from those fires in Canada, was that a bit of a wake-up call for the entire country to understand that this is not going to be a regional issue that much longer? Well, I'm afraid we think so, yes. And that's why we put out a, a press release and alert to the regulated public that we want employers to be prepared. Uh, we were not asking them to react to that wildfire event, but we were asking them to be prepared for future wildfire events by having strategies in place, plans in place to protect their workers, whether that is having more flexibility about when work can be done, whether that is having a respirator program and that they are using filtration systems, if that's feasible, reducing levels of physical activity, especially strenuous and heavy work, and just making accommodations for people with things like air filters and HVA systems and other things. Doug Parker is Assistant Secretary of Labor for Occupational Safety and Health and Director of OSHA. Doug, thanks. You're very welcome. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadid.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the investigation into the sinking of a ship that killed dozens of migrants, plus a breakthrough for Aboriginal rights in Australia. It's 8:49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community, hosting an exhibit at Atlantic Wharf Gallery celebrating the 40th anniversary of artists living and working together in a converted brick and beam warehouse at 249A Street. Now through August 11th, fortpointarts.org. Christy Ennis has scaled six of the seven highest summits on each continent. All that remained was Everest. She was just 200 meters from that peak when she made a difficult decision. There was a point where pride kind of got in the way. You know, I was slightly embarrassed that I had to turn around. But at the same time, I'm very proud of the fact that I made that decision. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hear my conversation with Ennis on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Chinese President Xi Jinping today with both sides promising to stabilize their deteriorating diplomatic ties. In Russia, opposition leader Alexei Navalny is facing a new trial that could keep him in prison for nine more years. And there are celebrations across the country today to mark Juneteenth, which commemorates the end of slavery. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Near 70 today under partly cloudy skies, upper 50s tonight and mostly cloudy. Tomorrow back near 70 under partly sunny skies, there's a chance of showers. It's 64 degrees in Boston. When will all states recognize Juneteenth? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects not just done, but done well. Reviews, pricing, and booking at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. From Marketplace, I'm Novasafo, in for David Brancaccio. Happy Juneteenth! commemoration of the day in 1865 when enslaved African-Americans in Galveston, Texas, learned they were free. They were among the last groups of enslaved people to be freed in the United States. Juneteenth became a federal holiday two years ago, but about half the states in the country have yet to adopt it as an official state holiday. Efforts to change that are ongoing. Here's Marketplace's Henry Epp. Minnesota Senate President Bobby Joe Champion sponsored a bill signed into law this year making Juneteenth a state holiday, meaning state workers get a paid day off. He knows there's a cost, but... The benefits outweigh the costs, right? You know, productivity is increased when people feel good about their workplace. And he hopes private companies follow suit, too. The holiday is an opportunity for celebration and education, says Michigan State Representative Helena Scott, whose Juneteenth measure just passed last week. Slavery really is a stain on our society. So I think by acknowledging this, recognizing it, and really learning about it, that, that's the whole point of celebrating June 19th. But at least 20 states have yet to make Juneteenth a legal holiday. There's precedent for this in Martin Luther King Day, says Dartmouth history professor Matthew Delmont. Understanding that it took years and years of activism and education to finally get all states to adopt it, Juneteenth could likely follow a similar trajectory. 
It was 17 years before MLK Day was an official holiday in all 50 states. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. Wall Street closed for the Juneteenth holiday. Overseas markets in Asia fell ahead of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with China's leader Xi Jinping. The Shanghai Composite Index closed down half a percent. The Hang Seng Index dropped six-tenths percent. And Japan's Nikkei sank one percent. That meeting between Blinken and Xi produced no news of major breakthroughs, but the Chinese leader said he hopes to see a, quote, sound and steady China-U.S. relationship. There were also some words of rebuke. China's foreign minister Wang Yi told Blinken that the U.S. has a misconception of China. From Beijing, the BBC's Stephen McDonnell has more. China's foreign minister told the U.S. Secretary of State that relations between their countries were at their lowest point since the re-establishment of diplomatic ties. There are genuine fears that armed conflict between the superpowers is possible, so systems are needed to avoid this. On his trip to Beijing, Antony Blinken has now also met Wang Yi, China's top diplomat. They shook hands inside a hall at the Diaoyutai State Guest House before heading into a closed-door meeting. That's the BBC's Stephen McDonald. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. And by Fidelity, a dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. In Argentina, workers have been on strike for weeks, demanding higher wages to keep up with soaring inflation, which is more than 100 percent in the South American country. People there are no strangers to economic upheaval, but many are now desperately struggling to pay for the basics. The BBC's Valley Fontaine reports from Buenos Aires. In the last 12 months, inflation in Argentina rose by over 100%, causing the value of the Argentine currency, the peso, to continue plummeting. Gabriel owns his own apartment and is considered middle class in Argentina. Sometimes I say I'm going to probably have a good meal at lunchtime and then some biscuits before I go to bed around having lunch and proper dinner. And then uh, everything is going up. So I do get quite worried because that means I will have to sell my apartment and go somewhere else. But the problem is at the moment, nobody's got money to buy an apartment. So the only way to survive is stay put and tighten your belt as much as you can. Argentina began the 20th century as one of the richest countries in the world. By 2001, a struggling economy led to public debt, social unrest, the collapse of the banking system and the government confiscating bank accounts. In the years since, the blue dollar, which refers to Argentina's black market, US dollar exchange rate, emerged due to a lack of access to foreign currencies but buying dollars is not an option for everyone. It's pretty difficult being an immigrant. When I arrived here in 2017, the dollar was 16 pesos. Now, 437. 
26-year-old Brenda left Venezuela because of high inflation and came to Argentina. I feel like this is a second Venezuela, a country that once were so welcoming with immigrants is now losing all these people because young people like me it's leaving to Europe or just United States. The price of food has been hit hardest. Since January, it's risen by 41%, so much so that Victor often has to survive without cash. I exchange things which I don't uh, need, like trousers and shoes, gym shoes. And what sort of things do you swap them for? Fruits, uh, vegetables and meat. According to Argentina's National Statistics Agency, INDEC, 40% of the population are living in poverty. This means a family of four are living on less than $760 per month, of which just under half of that figure would be needed to buy basic food. That's the BBC's Valley Fontaine reporting. Tomorrow is World Refugee Day, and to mark the occasion, some 40 companies are pledging to hire more than 13,000 refugees in Europe. That's a start. The United Nations says there are more than 100 million refugees worldwide, including 12 million from Ukraine. I'm Novasafo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Upper 60s and partly cloudy today, mostly cloudy tonight and upper 50s. About the same tomorrow, partly cloudy, upper 60s, plus a chance of rain. It's 64 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.